1: Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that, and you could pick up with our new episodes next week. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. On today's show, I chat with Adam Mead about his book. The Complete Financial History of Berkshire Hathaway, a chronological analysis of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's conglomerate masterpiece. Despite many books already published about this topic, Adam decided to make this one in order to share new and fascinating facts about these three financial giants. For instance, did you know that Buffett isn't actually the founder of Berkshire Hathaway? We'll also be discussing a few common misconceptions about Berkshire Hathaway For example, the value of its float and the strength of its insurance companies. And we'll talk about questions on everyone's mind, such as, why hasn't Buffett deployed his large cash pile during the COVID crisis? Has Warren Buffett lost his edge? And if so, is he still worth copying? Will his company, Berkshire Hathaway, even survive without him or Mugger? And what are Buffett's timeless principles that made him one of the greatest investors of all time? Warren Buffett is one of my favorite investors of all time. Studying him is what really got me into stock investing and what made me really passionate about it. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Adam. I hope you guys like it just as much as I did. So let's get right into this week's episode with Adam Mead.
0: You're listening to Millennial Investing by The Investor's Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Millennial Investing Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Adam Mead. Welcome to the show, Adam.
2: Hi, Robert. Thanks for having me.
1: Tell us a bit about yourself, how you got to where you are today and how you got into studying Warren Buffett
2: i still consider myself relatively young here at 35, but I've had an interesting sort of meandering journey, if you will. I come from a family of business owners. So my grandfather had a tree service business. My father had a trucking company and land development business. I sold firewood through high school and college. I had a welding business. So business has always been sort of part of my DNA. After college, worked for a bank, stayed in banking for 10 years, uh, ultimately leaving as a, a commercial loan officer. I probably first discovered Buffett, you know, maybe when I was like 18. If you spend enough time in business, you're going to come across Buffett in one way or another eventually, right? That was sort of my first encounter with him. And one thing led to another and it was just fell in love with it, fell in love with everything he was saying and made total sense to me. And, And here I am writing a book about Berkshire Hathaway. So that's been quite the fun journey.
1: I think it's pretty safe to say the majority of the people listening to this episode know who Warren Buffett is. TIP was founded on studying Warren Buffett, so probably most people know who he is, but not as many people know who Charlie Munger is. I've been studying both of these guys for over a decade, so I'm quite familiar myself, but I'm always surprised by how few people actually know who Munger is. Knowing who both of these individuals are is going to be important for the rest of our conversation So let's start there. Give us a brief overview of who Warren Buffett is for those who may not know him. And then tell us a bit more about the less
2: popular Charlie Munger. Warren Buffett, he's been popularized, I guess, at this point, certainly, I think, because of his wealth. So, you know, Warren Buffett, generally known as, you know, a rich investor, right? He's on the Forbes 400. He's often quoted as being one of, if not the richest person in the world or the country. So that's the popular Warren Buffett. What a lot of people don't fully understand or maybe appreciate, certainly in the popular world, is just how much he is in our daily lives and has built up this incredible organization whose companies are in our daily lives. For the loom or Benjamin Moore. And, you know, he's known as this old rich guy at this point. That's Warren Buffett, (laughs) world's greatest investor, world's greatest value investor, at least to us in the inner circle here. Charlie Munger, it's interesting. I was recently listening to some old Daily Journal meetings and, and Charlie Munger's the chairman of this little tiny paper in LA, this Daily Law Journal. And someone asked him the question, you know, geez, why is Warren Buffett so much richer than you are? Charlie Munger's a billionaire. He's just not worth the 84, 85 billion that Warren Buffett is. So Warren had this really early start. I mean, he was picking stocks age 11, he bought his first stop. And so his introduction to the business world was much earlier. And I mean, he simply had a, a quicker start. And so by the time they met in 1959, Buffett was well on his way to investing for himself. He had already started this compounding. So I think it's really just a matter of Buffett getting ahead of Charlie at the beginning, and this just compounded over time. Warren had his partnership in the 1950s. Munger eventually started a partnership of his own. And so it was simply a matter, I guess, of where the two started at the starting point. But, you know, Charlie Munger is someone he doesn't seek the spotlight. And I think just by virtue of Buffett's headline wealth, that sort of catapulted him ahead in terms of popular culture and, and so forth. And he's on TV and he's, Munger is much more behind the scenes and he had his law practice for a while. And then the two became business partners in the 1960s. They bought this department store, Hawkschild Cone. That was ultimately part of this company called Diversified Retailing. And so the two were attracted to each other immediately. This famous story of them meeting and talking all night and, you know, both falling out of their chairs with their own jokes. You know, they were kindred spirits. So I guess it was only a matter of time before they joined forces and, you know, in 1978 Berkshire Hathaway and Diversified Retailing merged and Charlie Munger became vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway and, you know, the rest is history, but I guess I would attribute Buffett's relative popularity compared to Charlie Munger just from that starting point, just the character of of the man not quite seeking the spotlight and probably avoiding it if anything. Buffett
1: originally Invested by following a strategy taught to him by his mentor, which was Benjamin Graham. Who was Benjamin Graham and what was the strategy he used that Buffett started with?
2: So Benjamin Graham was, he's called the father of value investing. And So Benjamin Graham was born, I forget the exact year, late 1800s. So he lived, he grew up World War I, the Roaring Twenties. That was his start. And Graham had a setback in the 1920s when the market crashed and he was forced to sort of reevaluate everything and and just sort of turn inward and then ultimately outward in writing his first book, Security Analysis. And so what Security Analysis, which came out first in 1934, sought to do was essentially take the mystery, if you will, out of the stock market and was a quantitative approach And back then, you know, remember, this was a much, much more inefficient market. And so there were companies that were trading below cash on their books. But really, Graham's contribution and the genesis that sort of sets the stage for Buffett is recognizing that stocks are first and foremost a business, and then taking this quantitative approach to say, well, if a stock's a business, let me see what they own. And if I'm an owner of this business in part or in whole... I have a claim to these assets and OGs oh, here in the 1920s, 1930s, I can buy these companies that are trading for less than their working capital, You know, subtract all the debt out. And so that, that's Buffett's early years, which is following Graham's footsteps as this quantitative value investor. And they were also looking for what was
1: now been coined as cigar butts. You know, A cigar butt, you could typically get like one, maybe two more puffs out of it and that's sometimes what Graham was looking for is he would look for these companies that they didn't necessarily have a great future. He was looking for to get one more, two more, maybe pumps out of the stock or puffs out of the cigar, if you will, and ideally make some money and then sell it. So he wasn't necessarily thinking long-term like we've come to know from Warren Buffett. Adam, how would you define value investing? Has the definition of value investing today changed from
2: back when Graham was investing? I guess the short answer is no, you know value investing, and I'll I'll use Buffett's example of Aesop. Twenty six hundred years ago, a, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. You know that's the basic notion. And in one of Buffett's letters, and I think at the annual meetings, he says, "Well, geez, you know, Aesop forgot about the time element. So it's bird in the hand, two in the bush, but when are you going to get it?" And so you know that hasn't changed ever. All investing is value investing. To quote Buffett or Munger, uh, or both. Again. And so it's really just, what are the cash flows? When are you going to get them? And what is that worth in an interest rate environment? So, you know, it's a fair question to today and certainly looking back, right, Robert, from the 1920s and, you know, this sort of mysterious casino-like atmosphere of this inefficiencies in the 1920s. Today, where algorithmic trading, all this stuff, you have now all these, the second evolution of the tech companies. And so I guess my feeling is that it hasn't changed. It's more of how that basic fundamental framework is applied to today's environment. And so, you know, I guess one example that comes to mind is just basic communication, right? I mean, think about us communicating today or communicating something to the world, you know, 2,600 years ago with Aesop, you know, some guy would have been scratching something on a a wax tablet and somebody else reads it to the crowd and that's their podcast, right? and then you fast forward through the years and you have radio and you have tv and and now we're talking you know miles and miles away through video i can see you but we're still communicating and so i think it's still very much the same thing still laying out cash today for something that will ultimately give you cash tomorrow in some form and you know it's become more challenging now that, that there's more people doing it simply as well as this element of trying to determine what these cash flows look like. It's not as stable as it was in in certain industries. There's more rapid change. And so that fundamental problem, if you will, for the analyst of, Buffett says, printing out those coupons on the bond, what they look like in the future and bringing them back to the present, that hasn't changed. It's really just the flavor. For me, that's
1: exactly right. And what's kind of changed for me over the years is when I first started investing, it was more kind of following a Graham approach. It was purely quantitative. You know, I always thought you couldn't invest in a tech company and still be a value investor. But I've come to, and maybe my thought process on it is wrong, but at least the way that I think about it now is if you're buying a company with a margin of safety for less than what you think it's worth, you're a value investor. It doesn't matter if it's a tech company or if it's a manufacturer. And, you know, maybe some people don't agree with that definition, but that's at least how I've sort of changed my approach to value investing over the years is less focused on industries and types of businesses and more so on margin of safety and
2: what I think the value is of that company. That's right. And you know we all have to adapt. And Buffett uses the example of, which I go back to frequently, of car companies or airlines and how many you can get the product or the major shift right, but still be wrong on the individual company. So today that might be solar. I'm very confident that solar and electric vehicles and some of these other new technologies are going to, you know, quote unquote, win and be part of our everyday lives. But I don't know who the winners are. So if you don't know who the winners are going to be, you just pass. And I, I guess, you know, I was talking to somebody else about Apple recently. And with the growth of some of these companies where they're so exponential, you think about Berkshire Hathaway, they were quote unquote, late to Apple. But when you have this exponential growth rate, you can still do very well and make $100 billion in Berkshire's case and still be late. I think there's room for uh, certainly us today, we're going to be forced to grow and, and change and adapt and learn, but we don't have to be the early birds. We can be late. We can still stay true to these fundamental value investing Principles and foundations and do okay over time. And so that gives me confidence that value investing is just out of vogue at the moment and we'll be back in fashion pretty soon here.
1: I agree in terms of looking at trends and not knowing necessarily who the winner is going to be. And one of the approaches that I've taken to that is to kind of create like a small basket or my own small index, if you will, of those companies. So for me, a few years ago, I worked in banking similar to you and I understand fintech companies and just. The financial world, I think a little bit better than probably an average person. So I felt I had a good advantage there. It was within my circle of competency. And I've felt for a while, for years that we're going to a cashless society, moving towards you know cards and things of that nature. So, But I didn't know who the winner was going to be. Is it Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, Square, Green Dot? Who is it going to be? I don't know. So what I did was I created a small basket of all of these companies that I thought could potentially be a winner and I've done it that way. And I don't know if I'd quantify that as value investing per se, but that's kind of how I've approached these types of trends that I know are going to be worth more in the future, but I don't know which company specifically it's going to be.
2: You haven't strayed from the fundamental belief that they're all going to generate cash and earnings for owners, and you know, Berkshire's taken that approach from time to time. I think pharmaceuticals or even airlines recently. With you know, okay, we know the industry's going this way. It looks generally like this. We'll just buy a basket of it. So I don't think it's too far from the Buffett monger approach. It's just recognizing reality. And and you know, you learn things over time, and you learn that you know maybe the payment systems, certain companies use the quote unquote plumbing of the system, and they're using Visa and Mastercard anyway. And you see your adapt, taking Visa and Mastercards.
1: Specifically, as examples, is you know, Warren Buffett talks about toll bridges and he loves toll bridge businesses. So, for me, again, going to this basket, you know, I don't know who the specific winner is going to be, so I'll include them. But also, they're toll bridge businesses you can't typically get around, you know, historically, and this may change in the future with crypto and blockchain and that. But that aside, you know, these are toll bridge businesses where if you're spending money, it's probably flowing through MasterCard or Visa with a few exceptions. And so, it's like not purely a value play, like you've said, but it's touching on all
2: these different principles that Buffett has been teaching for decades. And again, you you adapt and you learn over time. And one thing I often go back to again is this concept of business as a movie and not a picture, right? I mean, you're constantly saying, okay, you're going in even understanding that things are going to change. And so the active, even if you just pick those companies and held them for 10 years, your active investing is going to be Following these companies over time and not trading. So I think that from that perspective, you're staying true.
1: When Buffett met Munger, Munger was able to change Buffett's approach to investing and really change Buffett's philosophy towards business. Tell us how Munger changed Buffett's approach from what he was taught from Graham and the ultimate impact this had on Buffett's future.
2: Buffett says it himself. I mean, he credits Munger with this tectonic shift in his thinking. So you know when we think back to Graham and, and where Buffett really grew up, it was that quantitative approach and it worked so well, which is why it was so hard to get rid of you know one you're, you're using it for so long and it's working well and it's made him a millionaire. and so here comes Munger and says, hey I don't come to the table with this baggage. I think quality is the way to go and it's easier and it's more fun and you know you can sit around and, and the business will do well and you don't have to worry about trading it for the next thing and so Munger represented this shift from quantitative to qualitative. And I think Buffett would have come to that eventually. But Munger expedited that process. It was really opening his eyes. And you have to credit Munger for, you know, this force of personality who we know he is today. But to change the mind of, you know, who we now know, fair to say, is one of, if not the world's best investors, Munger. In his own right, is a world-class investor, and, and to have this change on Berkshire and, or on Buffett and ultimately for Berkshire, is no small feat, and, and that's why in my book, I've credited him as the architect, if you will, and it's, it's really the Buffett and Munger Show, even though the wider world does not fully appreciate Munger's contributions.
1: Of course, you can't really answer this next question with certainty. It's impossible to know for sure. But in your opinion, do you think Buffett would have become? As successful as he has if he never met Munger?
2: Yes and no, right? I think, you know, like I said before, I think he would have come around to it eventually, but I think it would have been later and magnitude wouldn't have been as great. So, you know, maybe we're looking at in 2021 a Berkshire Hathaway that's a $250 billion market cap because this qualitative shift didn't happen until the 90s, right? And so, I think he would have gotten there eventually. You know, Buffett is as Munger said, a learning machine. He would have figured it out, but I think Munger's contribution is no small one. There are a lot of
1: books about Buffett that have already been published that have been quite successful. Why did you think another book was needed about Buffett? What made you want to write it?
2: It's a great question. In fact, probably the first one <laughs> most people who see the book for the first time are going to ask themselves The short answer is, Robert, it was the book that I always wanted but never found, which was, you know, I'm a numbers guy. I'm a financial nerd, geek, whatever. I just never found this A to Z chronological, you know, numbers heavy history and and year by year. And my friend, Chris Bloomstrand, who wrote the forward for me, actually looked up and found that in the Library of Congress, there are over 200 titles on Berkshire, Buffett and Munger. So why another one? I kind of wrote it for myself. It was almost by accident. But again, it was kind of the book I never found. And I said, well, geez, I'm just going to go ahead and start writing it. And so this was five years ago, uh, roughly. So it, it's the first, I believe, that incorporates all of Berkshire's history from you know the predecessor companies, literally the textile companies in the 1800s, all the way to today. I calculated the number of pages of text and hours of video and, and the the pages total over 10,000 and the video, you know, the annual meetings are over 140 hours. And I read about over 3000 pages of the transcript there. So I would encourage, you know, anyone to take this journey. I mean, I learned so much. Digesting all of this and the subsidiary reports and and all of that, and I suspect a lot of people have already taken this journey. But it's basically this 10,000 pages through my own experience and viewpoint condensed into 800 pages of narrative, essentially. So I hope, having written it, I hope there's a few you know nuts like me that you know want this quantitative approach. But I really hope that the new student of Berkshire, because so much of it is timeless, the new student of Berkshire you know, even if 20 years from now can really get up to speed on the company and say, okay, what was the evolution year by year? And you can kind of see the changes in the business and what's happening in the economy and the stock market and Buffett's thinking, you know, over time as that evolves, really get that student up to speed and, and provide them a great introductory education at Berkshire. And I hope for the existing shareholder that it provides a fresh look and maybe it serves as a, a reference guide of sorts where, you know, you can flip to a decade, you can flip to a chapter. You have the, uh, in each chapter, which covers 10 years at the end of each chapter is the financial statements for that year, including some other things like the, the history of the f- growth and float breakdown of the insurance business. So, you know, if it plugs that hole, uh, I guess in the bookshelf, I'll be happy. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about
0: a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married, and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon? And millions of other queries right at your fingertips. Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply.
2: All right,
1: back to the show. There are a lot of things about Buffett's life that have been publicized and even popularized Tell us a few fascinating things that you learned about Buffett before his Berkshire Hathaway days that just aren't as well known.
2: The book is really a biography on Berkshire Hathaway, right? So it's the textile days all the way up to today. And so others have written some really great books about Buffett personally and and his partnership days. And, And I really don't go into much detail on the partnership days. But one thing I found fascinating, Robert, was And maybe a lot of people don't know this. You know, Buffett had this entrepreneurial zeal in his younger days. He was buying six packs of Coke and reselling them at a profit. He was, you know, having his friends dive for golf balls and reselling them. He was setting up pinball machines, and I mean, all these schemes. I mean, he read that book "A Thousand Ways to Make a Thousand Dollars," (laughs) and I think tried to do them all. So when you look at the history of Berkshire Hathaway, that never changed this entrepreneurial zeal that Buffett you know, had just stayed with him. And, and so when you look across the history of Berkshire Hathaway, and again, the, I would encourage everyone to take this journey of digesting all this material, having a relatively short 800 pages, you can zoom in, but then you can see this broader arc. And one of these arcs is this entrepreneurial spirit. And so you have the entry into insurance in 1969 with national indemnity, but then you have this history primarily through the 1970s of of trying stuff. The home state companies, some of them don't work. Lakeland Fire and Casualty Company, which was a Minnesota company formed in 1971, it gets closed down in 1982. Insurance Company of Iowa formed in 1973, gets merged into a Cornhusker Casualty in 1980. They bought this home and auto business in Chicago, Great little business run by this guy, Victor Rabb, let's try to replicate this in Miami. Another city completely fails, so he's had these number of different things even more recently when you think about in geico's case, you know Buffett's reasoning was that great auto drivers are great credit risks, and he ends up losing fifty million dollars and he even says that Geico's management told me not to do it, and I overrode them basically. And so he loses $50 million. He's constantly this entrepreneurial spirit pushing Berkshire ahead. You know, let's, you know, forget about today. Let's let's invest. Let's push forward. Let's try these things. I think that's underappreciated. And it comes directly from his early days, and it's just manifesting itself differently in Berkshire over time.
1: Speaking of his entrepreneurial spirit, a very common misconception I hear from people is that. Warren Buffett founded Berkshire Hathaway. And it doesn't only come from new investors. I've even had some very, very successful entrepreneurs that have mentioned this during a story that they were telling me that wasn't related to Buffett. It was just a different story they were telling me, but they mentioned in you know the founder of Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett. And they've mentioned that. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Buffett was not the founder of Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> I just want to make sure that's clear. I know it, like a lot of people think so, but he's not. For those listening that are hearing me say that and are hearing this for the first time might be a bit confused. Tell the audience what I mean when I say Buffett wasn't the founder of Berkshire Hathaway.
2: It's interesting. In a sense, he is, and I want to touch on that in a minute. But so Berkshire Hathaway, as we know it today, you go back to 1955, and it was the merger of Berkshire Fine Spinning Associates and Hathaway Manufacturing. Now that was 1955. So Berkshire Hathaway existed You know, from 1955 to today, that's the the current name. But the predecessor companies, and I guess the best way to think about this is almost like a rope, I guess. So you have a single strand, you unravel it. And so the the Berkshire Hathaway of 1955, when it finally becomes this merged entity, is made up of all these different textile companies that came together. And so the Berkshire comes from Berkshire Cotton Manufacturing, which was uh, formed in, in 1889 and Hathaway Manufacturing, which just coincidentally also formed in in 1889. But the furthest back that you can go is this company called the the Valley Falls Company, which was associated with the Chase family, who ultimately became part of the board and, and owners and so forth. But that was 1839. Taking you back a little bit, probably further than you wanted to go here, but the textile business comes from England in 1789. This guy, Samuel Slater, you know and it really gets kicked up and starts going in in the mid 1800s and the late 1800s and so you have half a dozen of these textile companies that are out there that ultimately merge in various forms and stages and so this first big merger if you will is in 1929 when Berkshire Fine Spinning Associates is created and that's a small conglomeration of these mills King Philip Mills Valley which i just mentioned Coventry Greylock Mills, Fort Dummer. There's a whole host of these. I have a chart in the book that sort of shows this evolution over time. And then a couple others get picked up in 1930. So that's Berkshire Fine Spinning. And then Hathaway is sort of operating at this parallel track until 1955, when the two come together and ultimately form Berkshire Hathaway. And so the mills, when you look back and you see Berkshire Fine Spinning or and then later uh, Berkshire Hathaway, the mills that are listed you know, on these old annual reports are really single predecessor companies or were just merged into one and then into another over time. That's the uh, genesis of Berkshire Hathaway. So technically, Berkshire Hathaway, it was the struggling textile company that Warren Buffett takes over. And that's the seed capital that ultimately he redeploys into other businesses, harvests from the textile business and takes it into what we know today. You know, it's interesting, the basic notion of Buffett as the founder of Berkshire Hathaway is, is not, not entirely wrong in the sense that, you know, he really is the modern founder. I mean, this business would have faltered ultimately and, and sort of faded into history. And so, you know, it very well could be around that time they bought blue chip stamps we very well could be sitting around talking about, you know, Warren Buffett and blue chip stamps, right? So that pool of capital or diversified retailing, that pool of capital that he started with, you know, just sort of happened to be Berkshire Hathaway. And uh, in a sense, he is the modern founder, but technically not. And I think, I hope my book will help tell the world of this fascinating history, uh, pre-Buffett, even pre-Berkshire Hathaway, the merger, and a lot of timeless lessons in that early history. When I first sent Warren a chapter of the book, I had the idea of, of starting in 1965. And I said, I'm going to go back 10 years, and then I'm going to go forward in 10-year increments. And so when I sent Warren this first chapter, he said, glad you're writing the book. It'd be interesting if you went back to the World War II days to see the profitability of these companies, You know, this brief fleeting burst of profitability that World War II brought on. And so I I said, well, I'm doing that. I'm going to go all the way back, right? So that's that's why I went all the way back. But there's so many lessons in these early textile companies, you know, working capital and reinvestment of into plant and equipment and depreciation and the accounting, which they often undercounted depreciation. So it looked like they were more profitable and they were declining into oblivion. All these are outdated examples, but just like the definition of value investing, Still relevant today, still just applicable to, to different businesses. And so World War II, you know, creates this shortage, which the surviving companies are able to just have this huge run-up in profitability because they were the only ones around. And so these themes, you know, history, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes very much alive and well in Berkshire's early history.
1: What other misconceptions or misunderstandings are there about
2: Berkshire Hathaway today, such as the value of its float, for example? Float's an interesting one, and it might be a little bit more technical for some, but I think that one of the biggest that I hear often is, you know, geez, Berkshire Hathaway is just, you know, it's a mutual fund or it's, you know, an alternative. It's really not true. The thing that people don't quite understand is, yes, it has a big common stock portfolio. That's one which has been shrinking in in importance over time. But Berkshire has the ability to move capital between subsidiaries, tax-free It has all these other advantages that a mutual fund just simply doesn't have. And so that's, that's one I hear a lot, but float even among investors, I think is not as well understood. So float is simply monies that an entity holds and insurance it's premiums received and losses that haven't been paid out are sitting essentially in an account and a company can do something with them and invest them for their benefit until ultimately the money goes out the door. The first thing about Berkshire Hathaway's float is that it's, it's of a high quality. And so what does that mean? That means that it's, it's written to an underwriting profit. So Berkshire explicitly, 100%, their first focus, writing to underwriting profits over time. And so this pool of capital, which it's no secret in the industry that you can write business. I write Robert a policy, he gives me you know $1,200 for his auto policy. And I get to hold that money and invest it until it's possibly paid out. That's no secret, but the industry just, you can immediately write a policy and get cash in the door, but the key is to have it being profitable over time. And so if you have basically two forms of insurance, two forms of float in Berkshire Hathaway, you have the short tail sort of revolving fund of GEICO, lots of policies, lots of premiums coming in the door, lots of losses going out, but it's this revolving and growing fund. And then you have the reinsurance business, which is more akin to borrowing money with a payment stream that's not known and an ultimate dollar amount that's not known. And so the reinsurance is lumpy. It comes in fits and spurts and the accounting is kind of weird, but over time, Berkshire has managed its its reinsurance business very well. And so Float has currently constituted and as Berkshire Hathaway has created it, really, truly focused functions just like equity without the dilution. So it's listed as a liability on the balance sheet. The way it functions is very, very much like equity. In fact, in some cases, better than equity. It's, it's not dilutive and it has the ability to grow. And I even modeled this out and I have a chart in the book where you know Buffett says that float, if it declines, it'll decline at say a 3% rate. And so you take they're underwriting profits. And, you know, across the board, if they're able to generate a 3% underwriting profit or a 97% combined ratio, and float declines at 3% a year, what you have is this steady state amount of capital that is available for shareholders. But what happens is the float declines, but the profits essentially make up this growing piece. And so it's it's better seen visually. But if Berkshire Hathaway, which I think it will, generate a modest amount of underwriting profit. And even if it declines over time, this 135 billion plus in float is essentially equity capital. And and I don't think it's fully appreciated even by those who follow Berkshire Hathaway.
1: What is the risk exposure for Berkshire Hathaway's underlying insurance businesses from
2: COVID-19? Well, in some ways, I think it's probably modest, but in some ways it's not known. I mean, one thing that we've seen over time and, and looking through Berkshire's history is you know, this concept of social and judicial inflation. And so there's always this risk that a judge or a series of judges or legislation sort of retroactively changes the rules of the road. And so... You know Berkshire could find itself liable, but I suspect the last SARS episode, there a lot of insurance companies put these pandemic exclusion clauses in their contracts. So that's one element if, if Berkshire is on the primary front there. And the reinsurance front is another interesting thing. So at one point, Buffett makes the comment that it almost doesn't matter what the reinsurance liabilities are. It's only the amount and timing of the payments that go out. And so in, I believe at this point, I'm, I'm fairly certain in saying this, that every single reinsurance contract that Berkshire writes, there's an upper limit cap on how much they can pay out. So if it's asbestos or if it's other long tail risk that they've offloaded or retrocessional policy, the biggest thing is, okay, they've received the cash premium up front. How quickly will it go out the door? If it's capped, if it's the the big AIG policy from a couple of years, as an example, $10 billion premium, and they pay 80% of $25 billion over 25. There's a whole formula, but basically the upper limit is capped. And so what COVID might end up doing is accelerating those payments out the door, but that cap will still remain. And so I think it will have, in some instances unfavorable impact on Berkshire, but I, I think in other ways it's a risk that in some ways was almost anticipated in, in the sense of looking for these long tails and look for these out of the blue risks, which, you know, that's what a G Jane is is paid to to think about, right? <laughs> I remember back to
1: March twenty twenty, a lot of people were expecting a big deployment of cash during that time from Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. And it didn't really come. You know, We were expecting maybe a big acquisition or maybe just even an equity position upwards of 10%, maybe ownership of a company, but it didn't happen. And some people argued that it was potentially because of this exposure and risk that they had to underlying insurance businesses. And Buffett wasn't... you know, He wanted to make sure above all else that he didn't lose money and keep solvency. So there was some debate that he kept that cash on his balance to help with those things and didn't deploy it because of that. What do you see as the reason as to why Buffett didn't deploy more capital during the last market drawdown back in March 2020?
2: I guess I was among those that were sort of a little bit disappointed in the lack of major buybacks. I mean, I would have liked to see them hand over fist. And, you know, if they had 120 billion of cash, you know, why not? They were doing fine with 50 billion of excess cash. Why not just let that go out the door and, and repurchases or, or do some aggressive moves? But you listened into the, that last annual meeting, and, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners did. And I really sensed a lot of fear in Buffett's voice. And he and Ajit Jane and, and Munger and a lot of others spend their time thinking about worst case scenarios. And I think the scenario that played out last year was one of many possible scenarios. I think there was a, a genuine chance that we could have entered another depression another major, major depression uh, that even rivaled the 1920s. I think seeing those number one rule of you know live to see tomorrow just trumped everything else. I'm not sure if it was necessarily on the insurance front. I think it was more of just a catastrophic worldwide shutdown. I mean, imagine if the support that was given to to businesses wasn't there. I mean, we could have seen, I mean, even precision cast parts, which they marked down by 10 billion. I mean, that business could have gone completely out if airlines just completely shot down. A lot of the MSR businesses could have just completely failed. I mean, it's just the dark scenario that I think as a possibility was playing through his head very much could have come to play. And so I, I can't really fault him knowing his thinking, at least what he said over time. And, and I suspect that you know, those things were going through his mind and just led to, we need to sleep at night. Let's not be too aggressive here, even with $130 billion in cash.
1: Yeah. I actually sensed some worry or him just being genuinely scared during that annual meeting as well. And we'll talk about how his approach to preserving capital right now versus growing it, like he might have in his earlier days. We'll talk about that a little bit later in terms of how that might've impacted his returns versus the market lately. Do you think he'll ever deploy that capital before he passes, which we'll again talk about later in the conversation?
2: I think there's a good chance of it. The world can do crazy things. And you know he says that it can go from green to red you know, without stopping at yellow. And I mean, we've, we've been lucky that the stock price has lagged as an owner, full disclosure, uh, probably no surprise uh, of Berkshire. What a blessing that the stock price has lagged. And that has been an opportunity to, to deploy capital. So I suspect before too long, we'll see something happen there. If he does deploy it, what do you think the most likely
1: scenario is? What do you think he'll do with it? Do you think it's share buybacks? Do you think it's acquiring a full business? Do you think it's taking a major equity stake in one company, maybe
2: smaller stakes in a couple different companies? What do you think he's going to do with the money? The short answer is yes. And he said this over time, Berkshire strategy is one of, of opportunists. Our strategy is no strategy. And I've sort of classified or, or thought of it as patient opportunism. And so I'm confident that something before long, humans make up markets. And so whether it's repurchasing shares, when that makes sense to do, if there's a big acquisition that can be made, you know, maybe another partnership with 3G Capital another big stake in a public company. Those things are certainly possibilities and even a combination of, of those. I think it's less likely that they pay a dividend. I think there's other things that can be done before that. But I suspect within the next few years, we'll see something intelligent done with that cash.
1: There have been some investors who have been successful by just cloning Buffett. One of the most popular is Monish Pabrai. But for the most part, investors likely wouldn't do too well trying to just copy Buffett's picks. And I think this is one of the m- most common misconceptions around Buffett and approach to studying him.
2: Why should most investors not try to just copy Buffett's picks? If you approach it as a learning opportunity, that basic notion is a good one. Being a shameless cloner, as Bryce says, you know, 13F surfing, you know, uh, looking at the big positions of, of other well-known investors, that is a good practice. That is a way for you to Study and really back into certain decisions, why they're being made, even looking at some of the mistakes. You know, you and I cloning Buffett at this point, we're giving up our advantage of being small and nimble for Buffett's and Berkshire's disadvantage of being large and having this universe of businesses, the small universe of businesses. And I don't think that's an intelligent thing to do, but following it and certainly. Studying why he makes certain moves is a smart thing to do. But simply riding coattails, you know, if, if you don't know why you're buying something, how do you know when to sell? And, and Buffett makes mistakes. I mean, let's, let's not forget IBM, for example, or some of these other ones. He makes mistakes too. So study, but you know, you, you got to do your own thing, even if it's Warren Buffett you're following. Whenever
1: somebody is the greatest of all time, or at least in the debate, There are always people who have negative things to say about that person and that they've fallen from their once elite status. Adam, you're from New England like I am. So we've been able to witness one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time in Tom Brady. And we hear it all the time. People have been writing Tom Brady off for years and years now. Then he goes and wins another Super Bowl this year. The same thing has been happening to Warren Buffett for years. But the big difference between Tom Brady and Warren Buffett is that Brady is continuing to prove the doubters wrong whereas Buffett isn't quite doing so well and he continues to underperform the market. These two are playing very different games but I think the idea is the same. Has Buffett lost his edge? What has been the leading cause for Buffett's underperformance over the last decade?
2: Just talked about, you know, this basic disadvantage of size and, you know, Berkshire Hathaway not paying a dividend. It just supercharges the amount of capital that they have. To deploy. And that becomes a problem. And so I, I guess I, I look at it as two basic problems. One is their growing size and the shrinking universe of opportunities because of that size. And the, the other is just this simple abundance of cheap capital out there with interest rates being as low as they are. And who would have thought that the, the Fed, maybe someone would have, but, but the Fed would have stepped in the way they, they did and lent to companies last year versus what Berkshire was able to do in the Great Recession, which was lend out a bunch of capital at you know exorbitant punitive rates, and so that opportunity was foiled by the Fed. Those are the two main causes, I think, of its underperformance. And it's certainly a great analogy. And I guess you got to watch out. You know, again, being from New England, say Tom Brady outside of New England, you might lose some some listeners because of bringing up Tom Brady. But you know, maybe it's just a case of you know we're sort of early in the season, right? And we're not quite at the Super Bowl with Buffett. I think he is more likely than not to be proven right at the end of this. You know, within the next couple of years, this extreme conservatism and and prudence managing a strong balance sheet, I think, will shine through. I think we'll have one of these moments. Oh, okay, this looked great in hindsight, but you know, who, who knows? Those opportunities, because of their size, are really shrinking. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
0: Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff, Or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. That's netsuite.com slash M I.
1: All right, back to the show. Even more than just the underperformance that Buffett's had, what I think is more important or more valuable than copying him and his stock picks is learning from him and his principles, like you said. And for me, one of the biggest reasons for that is because every investor has a different circle of competence than Buffett. So it doesn't really make sense to invest exactly the same way he does. You don't have the same temperament he does. You don't understand his thesis. Those are probably pretty obvious. But more importantly for me, I don't have the same circle of competence as Mr. Buffett does. But I can take his principles of investing and that principle he has of circle of competence and apply it to my investing. He applies it to energy. He applies to insurance. He invests in these two industries and businesses a lot. You know, I don't really understand the insurance business all that much. Maybe if I studied it a bit more, I probably could, but I don't think I really do. And I really don't think I could understand the energy business. I just don't think either of them are really within my circle of competence, but I know that fintech is. And so I personally have positioned my portfolio that way. I don't copy Buffett's picks, but I take his philosophies and his strategies and his principles and apply it to my portfolio that way. What other principles of Buffett's have led to his success that investors listening today should follow?
2: Well, uh, one of the biggest ones that I've learned over time, again and again, is is really patience. What we we're just talking about of eventually coming through this long episode of underperformance and sort of frustrating environment of of opportunities is patience. You know, when I look back in my own investing career, th- there were certain times where my patience kind of gave up, went down the quality scale, and kind of just said, "Well, I'm going to buy this." You know, like in various degrees over time. And so, you know, what I've learned over time is really that patience really pays off. A lot of times comes back to temperament and being active in your searching and thinking and reading versus trading. I often stop and think about, okay, well, if it takes me three years of searching to find an opportunity and it doubles in the next two, or no, even if it takes four years to find, waiting three years and and a double in two, that's a double in five years is 15% a year. Like The math checks out. If it takes you seven years to double... And so it's four years of searching and three years to double. That's a 7% return. It's not terrible. And so this idea of patience is so powerful, mm-hmm. and the math and the reasoning behind it is so powerful. One thing that comes up over and over again in, in Berkshire's history is this idea of economics over accounting. And so you see it with look through earnings, which, you know, with Berkshire having such a heavy investment portfolio. It's just simply looking at those companies and saying, well, geez, not all of them are paid out as dividends. They don't show up in the accounting. What would our share of these earnings be if we just look through, if they float all the way through to the bottom line, what would they look through? And so separating the economics of the situation from the accounting is so important. That's another one I think would benefit everyone listening today.
1: I saw a post on social media. I think it was yesterday or a couple days ago. And the post is basically talking about celebrating your small wins and talking about how small wins build up momentum for you. And I, I commented a quote, one of my favorite quotes of Warren Buffett, where he says, I don't look to jump over seven foot bars. I look around for one step bars that I can step over. And I commented that on the post. And then I didn't really think much of it because that's a quote that I love. And then I was checking my phone this morning on social media and and somebody commented and said, Yeah, the same guy who sold all of his Apple shares for Chevron and Verizon. No thanks. And I found that funny because I think it speaks to the patience that you just said. And you talked about how we might be at the beginning of the season for Buffett. And sometimes that's hard to believe because he's older. I would say he's on the older end of the spectrum. So it's hard to think that he might just be at the beginning of the season. But to the comment that that individual made, it's like, You know, I think I believe in Buffett and his track record deserves that reputation. And maybe he did, maybe we don't understand why he made those trades or those investments right now. But I think in the future, if you have patience, like you said, we'll see if he was right or wrong. And we're not guaranteed that he'll be right. But, you know, it's just interesting to see that so many people have been writing him off already and just illustrates how we don't necessarily understand why he's making the picks he's making.
2: I suspect he wouldn't be too offended, you know, to, to call a 90-year-old and Munger's 97. I guess, that, you know, they'd like to think they're middle-aged, but I th- actuarial science might call them old if they don't use that technical term. But one thing, again, for with Buffett and the patients is thinking long-term. And so I, I think it's th- the mindset that they have, and Charlie Munger with Daily Journal making these investments that are very likely to not come to fruition until they're gone, this mindset of thinking very long term. I mean, he literally thinks in decades, if not longer, and just says, "Okay, take this—the principle from economics of ceteris paribus. You know, everything else the same—and just extend our viewpoint to infinity. What do things look like?" But you know, he's really thinking in at least decade stretches, and so if you're someone like Warren and you're the head of Berkshire Hathaway. you're know you thinking 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years in the future, even though you know you're not going to be around. So I'd almost say that your age doesn't preclude you from thinking very long term. And, And in fact, I think Buffett and Munger have proved that.
1: It's no secret that Buffett and Munger are getting older. We've both talked about that. And although I wish they'd be around forever, we know that's not a possibility yet. Science isn't there yet. So what does the future of Berkshire Hathaway look like after Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are
2: gone? A little bit of the same, a little bit different. I think that the future is, is capturing incremental value. And so just simply by virtue of their size, they are not going to have these massive gains uh, that they've had in the past. And I have a chart in the book of the rolling 10-year outperformance of Berkshire's book value compared to the S&P 500, and it's, it's a very clear downward trend from double digits in the earlier days down to just a few percentage points more recently. And, you know, if you do the math and you calculate it out, you know, over a 10, 15, 20 year period, even a one to 2% outperformance is, it compounds it to something very meaningful. And so I think that won't change. How do they get that incremental return? I think it's really taking advantage of these infrequent, perhaps, but meaningful upside opportunities and avoiding the downside. So they don't, you know, if they could just not do something dumb on the flip side, they can repurchase shares when it makes sense to do so when they're trading at, you know, a modest discount to intrinsic value, they could lend to different businesses, you know, serve as this sort of merchant bank over time, you know, they can buy stocks when the market panics and pick up value that way. And so I think it, it will definitely, w- without a doubt, be less than the glory days. But I, I think that's not to say that Berkshire Hathaway's future doesn't look right.
1: Does this change at all if one person leaves before the other? We've heard you know, couples sometimes and frequently pass within a very short period of time of, of each other, but I'm not sure if Bun- Buffett and Munger have quite that connection. So it's probably likely that one will leave us before the other. And if that's the case, do you think that this is going to have an impact on Berkshire Hathaway? What if Munger leaves before Buffett? Does that mentally impact Buffett so much that he leaves the investing game forever? Or what if vice versa? What if Buffett leaves first and, and Munger stays? What is the future of Berkshire Hathaway in terms of one of those different scenarios happening?
2: First thing that comes to mind is is Buffett's quip that Charlie Munger's main purpose is, you know, he's the canary in the coal mine because he's seven years older. But I, I would argue that Berkshire's course again, retaining all this capital, it's accelerating and it's at a larger size, its course was probably set 10 years ago. So in other words, if either one or both of them had left 10 years ago, we probably would roughly be in the same place we are today. in many ways, and I mentioned this at the end of the book, you know Berkshire after Buffett, I didn't completely steal uh, the book by the same name, but basically Buffett's greatest accomplishment is that Berkshire Hathaway can live, without him there. And, and I think we're at that point now, but I, I think we would have been there many years ago. And, and you, you go back even to the, the early 1990s when Berkshire has their Solomon investment almost blow up and Buffett has to become interim chairman of Solomon. And he says, basically proves the Berkshire model of this extreme decentralization, this delegation just shy of abdication. And so Berkshire's always been ready in many ways for Buffett and Munger to take off or leave the scene in one, one way or another. But I would argue that where we are today, I don't think much will change. I really think its its course has been set. And we, we see Greg Abel taking up additional responsibilities and we see Ajit Jane taking up additional responsibilities. And don't forget that all of those subsidiaries still have this basic advantage and operating structure of operating in a decentralized manner. so in many ways saying that Berkshire Hathaway can can operate without Buffett and/ or Munger is indeed a compliment to both of those men.
1: Jim Collins in his book Good to Great, talks a lot about this principle is how a real leader is judged based on how the organization continues to do once they've left not so much by just the results that they've had when they were there because there are plenty of people that have done great organizations and then they leave and everything crumbles. So he argues that the real test of a true leader or good leader is based on how the organization does once they've departed. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to Berkshire Hathaway post Munger and Buffett. Do you think it's possible, given how much Buffett talks about individual investors and people investing in the S&P 500, do you think it's possible we ever see his $100 billion in cash just go to an S&P 500 fund and really not much individual equity investments anymore?
2: You mean essentially trade the investment portfolio for a hands-off you know we can send todd and ted home and, and they're just gonna invest in a low-cost index fund and and that'll be that i i don't think so I don't, I don't see that happening i mean really i think this decentralization happened because buffett and munger came from a background of picking stocks and so what's the difference whether they own 10 percent of a company or 100 percent of the company they could be managed in a decentralized manner they're always looking at businesses. I think if that were to happen, that would be a complete admission that they can't do well. And it would be extremely inefficient. I mean, at that point, that capital would have been better served, distributed to shareholders, because you'd have this horrible tax situation of owning this index uh, and paying a corporate tax and then going to the shareholders. So I'd have to start to question management if I saw that happen. So short answer is no.
1: What role do you think Ted and Todd play in the future of Berkshire Hathaway when Munger and Buffett are no longer around?
2: I think they will serve as part of that inner team and part of that, you know, their primary function will be to find investments and manage the investment portfolio, the whole thing, not just pieces of it. But you know, as business owners, again, you know, I, why they wouldn't have an S&P index is you know, they're buying businesses and it really doesn't matter whether they buy a part of it or all of it. And so, you know, and we've seen this Todd and Ted serving as chairman, certain subsidiaries. And so I think they will serve as sort of a, you know, primarily operating the investment portfolio, but then serving as a consultant, an idea generator for, I'm assuming, Greg Abel, who's going to be the next CEO. And I think, Greg is someone that would appreciate that input. He doesn't have an ego. And then, you know, if it's 20 years in the future, those investment people I think would serve, if it's not Todd and Ted, will serve this primary function of being capital allocators and really astute business observers. And I think that will benefit Berkshire both explicitly through the investments that they have, as well as managing the internal wholly owned subsidiaries. I know for me
1: personally, Buffett has had a big impact on my life, not just as an investor, but just even as a person, as a man. For me, it goes deeper than just his investing principles, such as when he talks about reputation. As a younger kid, when I was 14, 15, and I found Buffett, I truly believe learning about his principles around reputation kept me out of a lot of trouble that some of my friends might've been getting into. And I think it's really had an impact on how I live my life. From your time studying Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, investing wise or personally, what have you learned that has truly changed your life?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, and I mean, all all those things, right? I mean, I I feel so fortunate to have found these guys and to have, you know, luck, whatever it might be, to to be receptive to their ideas. and And I agree. I mean, it's almost incalculable. You know, where would I be today without these two guys? And You know, taking the high road, which, you know, almost paradoxically or counterintuitively is actually the easier way to go, as they say, you know, thinking long term, which, you know, doesn't just apply to business. It applies to your relationships. It applies to, you know, your personal life or your personal habits. Charlie Munger, I very much relate to Charlie, uh, just again, sort of personality quirk wise, this idea of worldly wisdom and, you know, the liberal arts and just synthesizing wisdom from all different areas of life has really helped me. And, and even his counsel of no self-pity, right? I mean, and, he, and he's one where he went through a divorce and he went through his child dying of, of leukemia. I mean, when he says, you know, don't feel pity on yourself, even if your child dies, I mean, he has earned the right to say that. And I've found myself drifting in, in that direction in terms of, you know, it's, it's a Stoic philosophy, really. But one, I would also add to your question, Rob, and almost use a mongerism and and invert it and say, what from their life would I not do? And I've thought about this and it's a question, you know, not a lot of people ask, but when I've studied Buffett, his life, you know, two things come to mind. One is he was just so obsessed with business. One of the reasons why he's so successful, he's just laser focused and just obsessed with business and investing and making money. And you know, his relationships with his kids, you know, his family, it's all worked out for the good, but I'm personally not willing to trade, you know, that time with, with my family or, you know, some extra money or a few extra percentage points. That's one choice I've made. And the other is, I don't think you can live off of a diet of cherry Cokes and sees candy. Like I, I just, I, I feel like to take that long-term view and to be around for the next 50 years, 60 years, or whatever I'm, I'm blessed with, I have to take care of my body and, and that will take care of my mind. So the family time and, and eating well are some two uh, anti-lessons or, or things that I, I don't want to follow Buffett, which again, I, I don't often hear that question asked. Don't forget all of his McDonald's. So that's right along there with it, or ice cream and Oreos for breakfast or whatever it might be which I mean, there's a certain degree of truth to being happy, but I think you can be happy eating you know, Cheerios instead of uh, you know, briers for breakfast. <laughs> and you know, Todd and Ted are runners. Pe- people might not know that. I mean, they're, they're big runners. If I ever get the chance to ask them that question, I, I'd certainly do that. And, but, but even you know, the food thing, it illustrates this. Buffett is certainly, I mean, he's not a genius, pretty close to it. But really, I mean, he simplifies so many things. And I've heard him One comment he made was, well, geez, you know, I can eat, you know, whatever it is, 2000 calories a day or 2,500 calories a day. If I have a a cherry Coke and it's 210 calories, you know, geez, that's just part of my daily calorie allocation. So he's broken it down to something very simple, but I would almost say, well, geez, you know, if if a younger Charlie Munger were looking at his diet, maybe he would introduce some science of nutrition and molecular or or cellular biology or something into the mix to, Convince them to uh, maybe try broccoli once in a while. I don't know.
1: <laughs> what I love about this last few minutes of the conversation that we've been talking about, in terms of what we've both learned and taken from Buffett and Munger, is probably one of the most common things I get asked from people is, "How do I find a mentor?" And I think I can safely say neither you nor I have been one-on-one mentored by Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger, and we probably never will be. But I still feel like I have been in a sense. And I feel like I have Buffett as a mentor. And so that's one of the things I try and tell people and teach people is with technology, the way it is today in books and podcasts, you don't need a one-on-one mentor to get the same mentorship or pretty close to it that you would get even if you were one-on-one with them. So this, I think, just drives that point home even further for me.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I think Charlie Munger has called it, you you, you can converse with the eminent dead You know, you you can have a conversation with Benjamin Franklin or Cicero if you wanted to, or, you know, anyone from the past. Uh, It's a blessing. And Buffett and Berkshire and and Munger, they were great teachers. Buffett has even said he wants to be remembered as a teacher. But, you know, when you look at, you know, all of the material that's out there and the the things that he's shared, you know, we're so lucky. I was so lucky to have all this material to, to go through. And, writing a book about it, and timeless wisdom or, you know, if you want to become a better investor, he said it all. It's right there for the taking. And so what's fun about today and especially like you say with technology is, you know, we can all learn together and I think it really is just the willingness to do it. You know, we're all on this journey together and there's a lot out there to learn.
1: I think too often people want to be able to reach out to someone and get the direct answer even though that answer might already be in a book or a podcast. They don't want to have to do the work to find the answer rather they just want to be able to call them or text them and say, hey, what's the answer to this? And not necessarily put in the work. When you look back to when you first started investing, what do you know now that would have helped you grow your wealth quicker if you had known it back then?
2: Let's see. Buy Apple, buy Tesla, even though I wouldn't. No. <laughs> buy Bitcoin. Other than a crystal ball scenario, I, just, I would reiterate the patience. I mean, really, I think the best analogy that Buffett has talked about is this, uh, the punch card analogy, which, you know, if if you had 20 punches and every investment decision that you made in your entire lifetime, you know, you take a punch out of that card, you only had 20 decisions to make, you'd think a lot differently. And I think that would just help crystallize and incorporate a lot of different things that make a successful investor, that patience would definitely be there.
1: Adam, thanks so much for joining me today. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation and I could have kept talking for hours. I'll definitely have to have you back on the show again soon to talk about Buffett and Munger and Berkshire Hathaway more. For those listening that want to learn more about Buffett, Munger, Graham, any of the guys that we've talked about today, or even yourself, where's the best place for them to go?
2: Yeah, so uh, thanks, Robert. Uh, this has been extremely fun, and uh, you know we have uh, decades and decades of Berkshire's history. I, I'd love to dig in and and even take some questions from listeners, or you know however you want to structure it. Uh, we can go decade by decade. There's just so many great lessons. So as I was going through my research, I, I realized you know I, I wanted to have a place to put this, and as a way of giving back, and and as a platform for the book, I created this website called theoraclesclassroom.com. I also have the domain brkbook.com. So you can go to either one of the two and there you'll find, you know, you can contact me. You can browse through a lot of Berkshire's archives, a lot of the early material, some of the, uh, even Moody's reports dating back to the 1920s and 30s. And even if there's stuff I've missed, I mean, there's a glossary there. There's all kinds of stuff. It's it's a work in progress. But if you go there, you can find me and I'm not going away. I'd love to come back on the show and look forward to the next time and, and from hearing from folks. It's a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Adam. Thank you,
1: Robert. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week.
0: Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investor's Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin. And every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets.